I want to welcome you back to our sermon series, Engage. Jesus was the most remarkable person that ever lived. He lived the abundant life that he came to give. He lived fully in step with the Father in the Spirit, which enabled him to habitually do the right thing when the right thing needed to be done. When we think of Jesus, I think we have this tendency to chalk up his life to the fact that he was the Son of God, that he was God in the flesh. And so I think we have this tendency to think that living like him is just impossible. However, Jesus made it repeatedly clear that he expected his followers to live like him as they were fueled by the Spirit. If you look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that we covered in detail over the course of several months, he made this point, right? Matthew 7, 24, and then verses 26 and 27. They say this, if I can get there. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine And does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And then the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. We want to build our lives on the rock. Jesus expects us to live a victorious, abundant, abundant, obedient life. And as Philippians 2 asserts, Jesus didn't throw his God trump card down every time he encountered a difficult circumstance, but rather he chose to set aside his divine privileges and not use them to his advantage. And so he calls us to this victorious life. What was Jesus' secret? Why, as Brandon explained in the song, why was he so faithful? How could he be so faithful to the Father, so faithful to us? This was Jesus' secret. His victorious life, the secret to it was the practices that kept him completely and totally reliant on God the Father and God the Spirit. That was the secret sauce for Jesus. That's what allowed his life to bear just this amazing, wonderful fruit. And this is true of any virtuoso. And this is something I've said before, and I know this is the third Sunday I'm going to mention Kobe Bryant. He just, this is, I don't know, he keeps popping in my head when I'm writing sermons. But anyways, what, what have you heard, for those of you who are sports people, that I've been hearing repeatedly about Kobe Bryant's work ethic. Even in the off-season, he practiced six hours a day. Two hours were just like running, just like track workouts for two hours. After that two hours, he then worked for two hours on basketball skills, in which he then made in those two hours, I don't even know how this is possible, a thousand shots. 
He didn't just take a thousand shots. He made sure he made a thousand shots in those two hours. And then the final two hours of his six hour workout was weightlifting for two hours. This was the off season for Kobe Bryant. What was the result of his work ethic? He was able to perform at a high level in the most difficult, you know, stressful game situations repeatedly. And that's why he's an 18, he was an 18-time NBA All-Star. Look, if we're going to live like Jesus, we have to engage in the same practices that he engaged in that kept his mind and body in tip-top spiritual condition so that he was able to do what needed to be done when it needed to be done. If he needed to engage in these practices, who are we to think that we can live like him but ignore how he lived, (laughs) right? These are the practices that were essential to Jesus being in tip-top spiritual shape. Prayer, he engaged God through prayer, through truth, through Christian community and experience. We've spent the last four weeks looking at how Jesus engaged the Father through prayer. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to how he looked at the scriptures, the word of God, and how he engaged those so that he was constantly in step with the Father and the Spirit. Pray with me, and we'll check it out. Lord, uh, we ask you as the... Uh, speak, O Lord, song, I spoke of, that you would speak to our hearts and minds, that you, Spirit, would enlighten us, that you, Spirit, would take the word and implant it in our hearts. Lord, may we see the value of engaging in the same practices you engaged in with the motivation that we want to know you more and we want to live more fully in line with who we are in you and we want to live in a way that our lives are such a demonstration and a display of your greatness. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you were to look at Jesus' life and how he engaged with the scriptures, you would find that he had the highest regard for them, that he believed that they were true, so true that he built his life on them. Let me explain. Number one, Jesus believed the scriptures to be the actual words of God. Matthew 7 records Jesus talking to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, and he was citing portions of the law, inciting portions of the prophets, the Old Testament, And Jesus, what he referred to these portions of Scripture was the commandment of God in the Word of God. If you were to read, you would see this in Matthew 7, 8, in Matthew 1, 13. So Jesus believed that Scripture was the actual words of God. Secondly, Jesus believed that the Scriptures were true. When Jesus was praying to the Father about his disciples, Right before he was about to be crucified, Jesus prayed this in John 17, 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. 
Furthermore, in John 10, in a conversation that Jesus was having with some Jews who were desiring to stone him, sounds like a blast there, right? Jesus stated, John 10, 35, the scripture cannot be broken. What Jesus was implying was that there is no part of scripture that is not completely true, reliable, trustworthy, and it will never be proven to be otherwise. That's that's what Jesus was stating with this statement. Jesus believed that scripture were the actual words of God, and he believed that the words of God were true. Thirdly, Jesus viewed God's words as more vital to life than bread. After Jesus had gone 40 days and 40 nights without eating anything, can you imagine? I get hungry if I skip a meal. Like, I get hangry, right? I can't imagine going for 40 days without having food. And so here, Jesus, he had to be absolutely beyond starving. And Satan comes to him and tries, he tempts Jesus to disobey God by turning some stones into bread to satisfy his hunger. This was Jesus' response in Matthew 4, 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus was saying to Satan, look, what pleases me more than anything else is obeying the true words of my Father in heaven. That is where I get the most pleasure from. And if I have a choice from obeying the words of God or satisfying my intense hunger after 40 days of not eating, I will choose to obey the words of God. And what was Jesus doing when he was telling Satan this? He was quoting the scripture. Matthew 4, 4 is a quote of Deuteronomy 8, 3. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 4, 4 when he had just got done, finished, he just had, had spoken with the Samaritan woman at the well. And his disciples were trying to get Jesus to eat. Evidently, he needed to eat. This is what Jesus said to his disciples in John 4, 32 through 34. I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said, one, said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus was like, hey, look, this is what gets me pumped up. Obeying the true words of God the Father. This is what I live for. Jesus knew that living by God's truth, and God's word was the truth, would set a person truly free, truly free to live the abundant life that God designed for every human being to live. And he knew that nothing would suck life out of a person's life more than not living by the truth of God's word. And Jesus 
didn't just talk the talk. So he didn't just say, oh, the scriptures are God's word and God's words are true and they are vital to life, more vital to life than even bread is to your physical body. He didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. Jesus's entire life was directed by the scripture. Let me give you, I don't know, four or five ways in which it was. First of all, we've already seen that Jesus' life was directed by Scripture when he was experiencing temptations. In the wilderness with Satan, he directly uses Scripture as a sword to fight off the attacks of the enemy. Um, Jesus, he also, another piece of evidence that his life was directed by Scripture is he settled theological disputes using the Scripture. Uh, two perfect examples of this, if you want to go and read them, is Mark 12, 35 through 37, and Matthew 22, 31 through 32. Jesus, his life was directed by Scripture because he used it also to face his human adversaries. For example, in Matthew 12, when the Pharisees were all bent out of shape and complaining to Jesus that Jesus' disciples were eating, picking heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath, Jesus said to them, to these Jewish religious leaders, have you not read? He takes them back to the scriptures, and in love, he just gouges out the religious leaders' faulty interpretation of God's word. Another example of Jesus, his life being directed by the scripture and him using it to face his adversaries is Matthew twenty two twenty nine. 29. The Sadducees were attacking Jesus about his teaching on the resurrection. You know, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection and Jesus responded in Matthew twenty two twenty nine, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. You see, Jesus, he was always going back to the scriptures because this is what his life was built on. He used it to fight temptation, settle theological disputes, face his adversaries. Here's another thing that shows us his life was directed by scripture. He, all of his actions and choices were directed by scripture. When in the garden, You remember the episode where Jesus is in the garden and the soldiers, the Roman soldiers are coming to arrest him. And Peter, one of Jesus's disciples, takes out his sword, lops off an ear of one of the Roman soldiers. Guess what Jesus told Peter? Matthew 26, 52 through 54. Put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Here's what Jesus was saying. Look, my decisions and what I choose to do and not do, it is driven by the scriptures. And the final way we uh, see great evidence that Jesus' life was directed by the scriptures is that his very words were driven by the scriptures. His very words were driven by God's word. John 12, 49 through 50 says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. 
Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Jesus always spoke in complete alignment with what the Father was speaking. Not once did he ever contradict God the Father or God the Spirit. Did you know that 10% of everything that Jesus said were direct quotations of the Old Testament? Jesus believed that the scriptures were from God, that they were his very words, that they were true, and that they were essential to a vibrant, abundant, everlasting life, that he allowed the scriptures to direct everything he did, his words, his actions, how he dealt with temptation, theological disputes, and even his human adversaries. And that's why Jesus was able to make this powerful statement regarding Scripture. I love this statement, Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Do you, think, do you not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, the Old Testament? I did not come to destroy but to fulfill For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, these are the smallest marks of the Hebrew alphabet, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven." Jesus, he had the highest, highest regard for Scripture. Highest regard. And he's even saying, look, if you want to be great in God's eyes, believe that the Scriptures are God's words, that they are true, and have the Scripture drive your life. That's how you become great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus saw God, the Father and the Spirit, as supremely valuable, and then by extension, he saw the Word of God as supremely valuable. One final thing in terms of how Jesus, his high regard for Scripture and what he thought of it. Jesus also believed the Scriptures told one, un, or one unified story. This, is, this truth is made clear in Luke 24. Maybe you remember the story. Luke 24 records two men. Jesus had died on the cross, right? And you got two men that are walking from Jerusalem, the seven-mile walk to the village of Emmaus. And they're, these two men on their journey to Emmaus, they're talking about like, oh my goodness, how could the Jewish religious leaders and the Romans, how could they have killed Jesus, who in their own words was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And Luke 24, 21 tells us that these men were really hoping that Jesus would redeem Israel, that he would make it a great nation again. And from that restoration of Israel, God's blessing would then extend out to the other nations. And so they're trying to grapple with what just happened. Like they're shell-shocked, right? Like, How could this have happened? And we thought Jesus was the one. 
Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, he comes alongside of these two guys on their way to Emmaus trying to make sense of all this. And what did he do? He explained how the whole Old Testament, all of the laws and all of the prophets, their writings, they all told the story about him. They were telling this unified story of God's great redemption through his son, Jesus Christ, to save the world from Satan's sin and death. All of the Old Testament, Jesus was saying, whispers my name. Luke 24, 27 says, in beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Bible contains 66 different books written by 40 different authors. Most of them never met each other over this period of 1,500 years and was written on three different continents, and it tells one unified story. Do you know of any other book that has done that? I mean, even that evidence right there If you only had that, I think it's reasonable to conclude without a shadow of a doubt that this is God's word. It was inspired by God. How else does that happen? It doesn't. And it's all telling this cohesive story of redemption. Jesus had the highest view of scripture. And as a result of these convictions, his life was directed by it. I guess I am adding uh, just a couple more points here. Jesus, so what did this lead him to? If if he had such a high view of it and he based his life on it, guess what he did then? He regularly engaged God the Father and God the Spirit through the scriptures. That high view of what it is and the truth that it projects and explains caused him to like regularly engage it. Um. Jesus growing up in the village of Galilee, or that area, Nazareth, Nazareth was in Galilee. But the way that kids grew up, and Jesus probably grew up this way, is like when they turned five, they went to the school that was attached to the synagogue in their village. And there they were taught the first five books of the Bible by a rabbi. And they would have spent, Jesus would have spent from age 5 to age 12 learning Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In fact, by the age of 12, it was highly likely he had all of these books memorized. And when I was thinking about this, I thought, I can't imagine memorizing Leviticus. Has anybody here ever memorized some scripture passages out of Leviticus? Come on, anyone. Two verses? verses? You got two? Hey, that's good. They would have had the first five books of the Bible. It was highly likely that students by the age of 12 had them all memorized. And you got to remember that this was an oral culture. They didn't have copies of the scripture. If they were lucky, their village had one copy of the Old Testament, and it was kept at the synagogue. And so it's critical that people could memorize every verse of the scriptures, at least the first five 
books of the Bible. Now, for those really bright students at age 12, most students, they would stop their formal education and they would learn a trade. But for those really bright students, they would learn a trade, but then they would continue with their formal education. And what would happen is they would spend time with the adults of the village under the teaching of the rabbi again, and they would learn all about the prophets. They would learn all about the Psalms. They would learn all about the oral uh, interpretation of the law that was a tradition for the Jewish people. They would be learning all of this with the adults of the village. And for those especially, especially, especially bright ones, Um, they would at like around, I think it was like around the age of 18, they would go study with a famous rabbi until they were 30. Then they would be launched out as a rabbi themselves. That's how it worked. Um, The apostle Paul, he was trained. He was one of these really, really bright students. He trained under the famous rabbi Gamaliel. The scriptures tell us that. So, You read in Luke 2, Jesus is age 12. Jesus would have went to Jerusalem to partake in the Passover for the first time, like actually participate in in all of it. Luke, Luke 2, Jesus is 12. His parents lose him as they, you know, they're journeying back home. Passover is over. They're leaving Jerusalem, probably to head back to Nazareth. They lost Jesus. And when they finally realize it, they have to spend three days trying to find Jesus. Like, where is my 12-year-old at in a city that fills up with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people during Passover? Can you imagine? I think it was around a million people the city would swell to during Passover. Where do they find Jesus? Luke 2, 46 through 47, now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, these would have been the brightest of brightest scholars of his day, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. I don't know of another 12-year-old, if they, <laughs> they don't have parent supervision, that's going to go to the university and sit in on a graduate-level Bible class. Jesus was. He so loved the Scriptures. He, he was from 12, from 5, and then we see evidence at 12. He was just engaging God through, through them repeatedly. He had to be. If he was asking questions and making statements that were profound to these scholars, these adult scholars, he was immersed in it. Perhaps that's why, after this episode in Luke 2, what do the scriptures say? They say in Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. Jesus, his mind grew, his understanding of the scriptures grew. He also grew in favor with God. Amen. Remarkable. We don't know, like, if Jesus went and trained under a formal rabbi. Actually, I think Matthew 7.23 is speaking to the fact that he probably didn't go and do what Paul did, like, with a person like Gamaliel. I don't think he had that level of formal training. But, man, he was engaged. I think Matthew 7.23 lets us know that. He was so, he had to be so immersed in the scriptures, 
This begs the question, Don, I was thinking about this. What did Jesus think about the New Testament? Because right now we've been talking about Jesus' interaction with the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written. Jesus believed that the apostles who wrote the New Testament were speaking on his behalf. Check this out. John 16, 12 through 15 says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Look, there were things at that time before Jesus' death that he couldn't tell his disciples for whatever reason. Was Jesus concerned that he couldn't tell the disciples certain things? No, because he knew that he was about to send God the Spirit who would not only remind his disciples of what he said, but also would communicate things to them that he had left unsaid. J.I. Packer, a scholar, had to say this about John 16 through you know, 12 through 15. He said, Jesus had promised the 12 that the Spirit should come to teach them what, is in his, what in his own earthly ministry he had left unsaid. And he kept his promise so that the apostolic teaching was in reality the complete and final version of his own. Pretty remarkable. Jesus believed the Old Testament was the word of God. He believed that through the ministry of the Spirit, that the words of the apostles of the apostles were the word of God. And so you could say that Jesus believed 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture from Genesis to Revelation is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why was Jesus thoroughly equipped for every good work in every single situation? He engaged God through the scriptures. That's why. Now, the next time I teach, which will be in two weeks, Mr. Jim Curzon is next up on the docket next Sunday. He verified this morning, which is poor communication on my part. He's like, am I still preaching next Sunday? I'm like, yes. He's like, okay, good. Just wanted to... Uh, so, in two weeks, I'm going to be talking about, all right, so it, how do we practically engage God through the Scripture? How do we actually go about it? But here's the thing, and I said this in regards to prayer when we were taking an in-depth look at prayer. You have to see the value of God, and you have to see the value of the Scripture. It has to be a treasure to you, because if it is not a treasure to you, I'm going to talk about practical ways of engaging God through the Scriptures, and it's going to go in one ear out the other. You've got to see this as essential as essential to your life as bread is to your life. Because if you see it this way, and if God allows you to see it that way, you're going to want to hear what I have to say in two weeks. If not, I can talk to you till I'm blue in the face. It's not going to make a difference. Right? 
So, and that also deals with, you know, a lot of people say, I don't have the time. You make time for what you value. And if, and I said this about prayer, if you had more time, guess what you fill it with? What you value. So it's not a matter of time. It's a matter of what do we actually value? It's a matter of values. May God create in us hearts that see the surpassing, the all-surpassing worth of knowing God, experiencing him, and doing so through his word. Look, my prayer is that our hearts would become the heart of the psalmist that wrote Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yeah, or yay, however you want to, I guess, approach that. Than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. You see, the cost of engaging Scripture, engaging God through Scripture, is there's a cost, right? It takes discipline. It takes doing it even if you don't feel like it. It takes time. It takes focus. It takes study. There is a cost. There's a cost of saying no to good, th- good things so that you can spend time with God through his word. But I'm telling you, this is critical. The cost of not engaging God through his word is always greater than the cost of doing it. Here, if we just look at Psalm 19, think about the wisdom we miss out on when we fail to engage God through his word. We miss out on joy, Psalm 19 tells us. We miss out on enlightenment and clarity, We miss out on pleasure. We miss out on protection from wrongdoing and sin. We miss out on truth that sets us free to live righteously. Most importantly, we miss out on the great reward of knowing and experiencing the triune God. We can't afford (laughs) that cost. Do you want these things in your life? I think everybody probably would want those things. Well, stay tuned, because in two weeks, um, I'm especially going to be talking about how you engage God through the scriptures so that these things can be increasingly yours.